0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, I'm Jenna Siri. I'm a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by the incredible author Ramona Emerson. We all remember her debut novel Shudder from when it came out in the summer of 22, but now we are here talking about the paperback release It was long listed for the National Book Award. It was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Debut Novel Award. It's nominated for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel. And let me tell you, beyond all that, it's just a great ride and a great story. If you somehow missed it when it was out in hardcover, you still have a chance to redeem yourself. Ramona, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to just start by having you talk about the novel a little bit. This is such an interesting story. There's so much depth. It goes so much beyond just what y- you may think of with a procedural. And so I'd love to have you just introduce the book for our listeners.
1: Well, um, Shudder, you're absolutely right. It is kind of like it's a crime procedural. It's a paranormal thriller. It's a mystery. And it's also a coming-of-age story. So it's a little of everything that's kind of passing the one book. And it took me probably about 10 years to get it from like early, early draft, realizing that it was going to be a novel to, you know, where it was finishing its last copy edit as a publisher. <laughs> so it's about 10 years for what to happen. The book is really uh, a bunch of elements of things that I have experienced in my life. Um, I worked forensics for 16 years there in Albuquerque. Um, I did not work for the police department. I was for a private room, but we in turn worked for the police department. It's strange. Um, but I took that knowledge and all of my background and my my life growing up with my grandmother and my mother um, on the reservation and just all kinds of incidents, as well as the 16 weeks of classes that I took with the Albuquerque Police Department. Here in Albuquerque, they have a civilian uh, crime scene school you can go to for 16 weeks and just learn about basically every aspect of crime scene investigation if that's what you're into. And um, you you kind of write an essay at the beginning of it. and You have to get into the class and tell them why you want to be in the class. It was really an eye-opening experience for me to go to that class and to have that experience um, beyond my own work doing forensics um, at this private firm because it gave me, I think, a really complete uh, picture of what the industry is and what it's like and so and a lot of the a lot of the cases that I learned about in that APD class um, and some cases that I worked on myself as part of my forensic work was all included in this book and you know facts and people were changed and things but all of it was really based on real life experiences for things that really affected me in one way or another. I think that's what really special about this book is the fact that it, um, it is fiction, yes, but it is really called from experiences that I've had and, and and things that I've seen.
0: Def- I mean, this book is so personal. You can feel as you're reading it that this isn't just a, you know, cut and dry, formulaic procedural that we've all read, you know, a million times. This genre, you know, the mystery genre has these series that are, you know, hundreds of books long, and they can get to feel a little repetitive and they can get to feel a little clinical and cold, but this book is so warm. And even though there is a lot of thrilling elements and the supernatural elements can be, you know, a little frightening, a little overwhelming, but there's so much warmth and heart in the relationships between the characters. And I think that really makes this novel something unique. But how did you know this is the time? I'm going to start this. I'm going to write this. I need to put all this into something and put it out there for the world.
1: Uh, I think it was very early on, in like 2013. I was in a writing workshop. I was writing these short stories about my grandma, but I was also writing these other kind of, you yeah. know, uh, ghost stories kind of things that I heard growing up. And um, I was just kind of exploring that as, a, you know, fodder for maybe a screenplay or a memoir, or um, because I'm a filmmaker, and I thought of this kind of maybe as a documentary film about. Um, now those people were chief forensic. So there were all these like things going around in my mind about what this was come with or what the book was going to be about. Calling it um, <laughs> and I think it really um, hit home to me when I was in my first year of my MFA program and my first professor, Eden Robinson was like, Ramona, you're not writing a collection of short stories. Or this is after I had to be convinced by my other writing teacher at the workshop to not write a screenplay, but instead to write a novel. And I was like, I'm not a novel writer. I don't do that kind of thing. I'm, you know, I tell stories with a camera. I don't know what I do, try to write a novel. Um, But somehow these teen ladies convinced me that I could do it. And um, I was in the middle of my CSI class as well. And I had just learned about the case that actually turned into chapter one. Like, I can almost remember the day. It was like two months into my MFA program. And I was like, what would really be the thing that would be so horrible for her as a Navajo woman to experience or what would be what would be the most taboo thing? And I was like, oh, of course. If she could talk to people who were dead, that would be like, it would be much more interesting if she wasn't just a photographer or a detective. It would be much more interesting if she could actually communicate with them because what a horrible talent for a Nathaloo person to have because of the taboos that Nathaloo holds against death. And about and like you can't even talk about it. It's not something that is easily spoken of. And I thought, so if you're in the situation where you are able to speak and communicate with the dead, but it's like the worst thing traditionally or you know, in your own culture that she could possibly do, what would that be like? And I was like, Well, you know, because you were so forensic. So like you know how your grandma felt about that. Like you know. Some of the things that really freaked you out, it was like this moment of clarity for me when I realized that, yes, that's it. That's for me. And I just really felt like it needed to be done. I mean, we see, I'm a big law and orderer and SVU, I've been watching it for however long, 23 years or whatever, you know, and I, I've watched all those crime scene shows and Bones and all of that. And I was like, always say, like the one thing that you don't hear about or the one person on the crime scene that she don't really talk to or talk about. It's the photographer. And so it was like all of these kind of ideas culminated down together. And I realized that it was actually these little chapters that I had been writing were actually a novel kind of for me. So and I just buckled down and it started turning into chapters.
0: And you've really created a story that is so easy to get lost in because it it you have so many of those elements that make it real. It's so clear early on that this is not just any other mystery story. There's so much more depth to it. Like you said, the Navajo traditions and understanding those things. I mean, I think something unfortunately that happens a lot in like shows that you mentioned, Law and Order, Bones, even so much mystery writing is it's it's a very white genre. There's um not a lot of diversity in the traditions of the people that we see other than unfortunately victims. I think it's such an interesting, important piece that we need to focus on. The fact that in areas like Albuquerque, in areas like these reservations, that is who is solving these crimes as well as being affected by them.
1: Absolutely. And I thought I thought also as well that it was it's not only something that we hadn't really explored, but it was also something like I think people see indigenous people or native people. In these spaces that we've been relegated to, and you're absolutely right about the victim like when we're in the film, any film any mainstream film or TV show where you view the victim the crime um until very recently, we haven't really had a very big media presence at least on television um though it's it's new to people, but I still think that people still see native people in native spaces and we continue to write ourselves into those situations where, we are living on the reservation or, uh, you know, we're dealing with the casino. That's the other thing. I mean, there's always like these cliches, I think, that people have about what needed people, Native people are and where they are. And so for me, Shudder kind of made that leap into showing how most Indigenous people live. Like 80% of us don't live on the reservation because we can't survive there. There's no infrastructure, there are no jobs, there's no economy for us there. So most of us live in big cities or larger cities that are on the outskirts of our reservation. And, and we work with people who are Native, who have no idea who we are or what we believe. And in New Mexico, the Native culture, I think, is really a part of our world here in New Mexico. But if you went to any other state, they have no idea how Native people live or, or the, about their traditions or, you know, about that whole way of life. Here in New Mexico, I think we're lucky because we do. There are so many Native people here um, that we understand the impact of Native people on our land, and we they make space for Native. There are still, it's still a long way to go, but I just wanted people to see a Native person living in that space, space that most of us live in working with other people who are not navigable, who don't understand at all where we're from, but who are still a part of our world. And that's really a that's really a good illustration of like Alfred Call. A real mixing pot of all kinds of cultures together in one urban area.
0: And Rita's journey sort of back and forth between these two pieces of her life are so striking in sort of these comparisons, sort of in how she feels about having to leave sort of her home, living with her grandmother growing up, to the life she has with her mother, and sort of going into her adulthood. Um, When you were writing those stories and sort of weaving together these two narratives that I think are so important to showing the growth in Rita over these years, how did it feel to sort of create this big backstory for a character? Because in a lot of procedurals, we don't see these huge emotional backstories for our characters.
1: Yeah, that was really important to me because I realized pretty early on that people wouldn't get wouldn't understand why her gift or her curse, whatever you want to call it, is such an important part like of her her background and and why she is so secretive now in her current day really has a lot to do with why, you know, where she came from, where she comes from. So including that part of the story was essential to me because I wanted readers to understand the Navajo culture. And I wanted them to be able to see kind of what it's like as a Native person to do that, because we we really do um, come and go. Like every week we got to come and check on our parents or our grandmothers, or we have to come bring rotaries, or we work in the city, but we come home on the weekends. Or, you know, there's so many different circumstances that different people have. But a lot of people have this same bird that Rita has, which is they're raised on the red, And then when they grow up. A lot of them have to go to the city, they go to college, they do the thing, and then they create lives that are there. But they still have this connection home and this responsibility at home. And so um, that's, I think, really why the story goes back and forth. And also the fact that Rita, because of this power that she has, was able to have like this recollection about her whole life, like, even when she's a baby. like It's so ingrained in her that that power has given her all of these memories and all of these things that are going on in her life. So you have to go back. You would have to see how she became who she is, who were the people that protected her in her childhood, who were the people that were in her relationship bubble, and why is that important, and why is that ultra important to think she is now. So, yeah, that was really important. And and it was a real struggle, I think, to I mean really to get it published because of that. Because I think people really wanted it to be two books. They wanted me to write this memoir about Rita and about, you know, her life growing up and let that be a book. And then write the crime Um and I just felt like they needed to be together because you couldn't get all of the dips of her of her crime and her, her backstory if you didn't go back to it constantly. And you'll notice in the chapter heads that there's a camera model that comes along with just about every chapter. I think chapter four is called Page for Your Box, Um, because her grandma helps her learn how to make a camera. Blah, blah. But every single chapter has a camera heading and that is, in fact, to help keep track of what year it is. There was some confusion in some early readers as to why we were going back and forth. Like, why do we have to go back to read it? But I think it really, it, it sets up a lot of things. It sets up her relationship with her mother. It sets up her oh, animosity towards the department. Even though she's working for the police, I think she still had this background of distrust with the police and the police department. You wouldn't know why until you read her backstory and realize that she had reason not to trust. These are all things that are really a part of of life for a lot of Native women. So I really wanted to make sure part of the dialogue or the narrative thread that went through.
0: I loved the chapter headings with the cameras. I found myself Googling all the cameras just because I needed to know <clears throat> exactly oh, where they good. were at. That's what you're supposed to do. That but... <laughs> I actually I used to work at a drugstore and we developed film when I first started, and so I have always loved that kind of aspect of of film cameras, and I I loved like cutting the film and doing all the negatives and everything. And so I definitely found myself googling every camera because I needed to be up to date with where we were at on those.
1: That's great, and you know, and it's just like photography is the same anymore. For me, it's not the same, because this novel kind of takes place from, like, the 70s into the early 2000s. But, like, at the end of Shutter, it's like 2005. So, like, this the first year of the iPhone. And it's, it's like, kind of the first year that that kind of old-school photography just kind of disappeared. And digital became the norm. And people started taking phone reps their phone, and it became a computer thing, digital file thing. And it wasn't so much about waiting at the hour, waiting for your hour phones to be developed and all that. And there's just such great memories I have tied to that experience of having to wait a day for your photos to come out and, um, you know, having to use a developer and, you know, all the chemicals in the, in the photography lab. And I don't know, there was a lot more labor and loving it back when it was a little bit harder to get a picture to come
0: And having to be sparing about what you took a picture of because you didn't want to accidentally take four pictures of your hand when you were trying to set up something on a roll of film and then have to go develop four pictures of your hand instead of what you were trying to take a picture of. I had a lot of disposable camera mishaps.
1: <laughs> yep, that's it. It was, yeah, a, it was a whole different way of looking at images and, and thinking about photography, you know, than now, now photography is very disposable. And you're right about that. I mean, I think. Pictures of my feet all the time. <laughs> yeah.
0: The number of times that like, you accidentally open up like the front camera on your phone and have to get out of there really quick, it's very different than when you're like setting up a box pinhole camera.
1: Yep, that's right. I believe my mother and my stepdad are the first ones that um, turned me out of that. But I didn't never, I didn't know you to that. They take photographs of me when I was about like a first or second grade with a pinball camera, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever.
0: It is the coolest thing.
1: (laughs) The piece of paper in a box, really miraculous. Going back to the sort of dual narrative,
0: I think something that really helps move the novel along is those sort of glimpses into the past, because the sort of present day story, I guess, doesn't really let you take a breath. It sort of barrels through, and it has such a momentum behind it that those those breaks to sort of get see the past and you start to understand the choices Rita makes in the present as you start to understand her past. And I, I like you said, I don't think you could really separate those cleanly and be able to sort of tell that same story. Did you find yourself doing a lot of outlining as you were writing to sort of like set up the two narratives or were you just like, I got to get this out and it's going to come however it comes?
1: Well, I think... When I would write the um, the crime scene stuff, it was usually after I read or after I did something with Rita, um, in her past. I would try to think of a way to tie the past back to what was going on in her life. I think it would have been a little bit more linear had I done an outline, because you know I wanted I wanted people to see different things for different reasons, and um, it all led back to her crime scene. She would do a crime scene and I'd say, okay, what is the story I could tell about this particular moment? And back in her childhood, that would be reflective of this moment. And I did that a lot. So I would, you know, write a chapter and then I would look back on on uh, Rita's narrative and think, okay, what's probably the the biggest fable, like a problem cool from um, from her past in order to bring this doll forward? The crime scene just kind of bullets forward and it's constantly moving. And so I wanted to make sure that the narrative in her past didn't change. And so I would always kind of let do the scene ending at the end of every chapter. It's like scene end, So uh, it was like a screenplay. You want to make sure to pull whoever's reading into the next chapter. But you have a whole nother chapter that's in between. So they really have to be invested in that. And so you have to link those two storylines to the middle story. So it was like a puzzle, really, for me. I didn't have an outline at first at all. Um, I just started writing, and it just, um, it would come out, and sometimes I would write two or three crime chapters, and then I would go back and say, okay, where were we with Rita, and where are we going to face these next few segments, and how are they going to work? There were a few times where I put segments in and they didn't work, and I either cut them out or I had to move them back or I changed tricks her age and I had to move it forward or whatever. Um, but I always wanted that narrative to continue to drive forward and that was the one way. I... The second book though, the the people that I'm writing now, does kind of have an ongoing outline to it. Um, and I think it just helps because when I'm writing a chapter, I'll start thinking about chapters in the the, the next four or five chapters that are happening the well jot down plot lines for those chapters. So I kind of have like a general outline so I know where I'm going <laughs> uh, but I, I don't think I really had that one because I was, was my first book I had never I had no idea how to write fiction or a novel or um, how to how to put that together I just didn't and so I was just kind of flying by the seat of my hand and looking at it like a storyteller and trying to keep my audience engaged and that's, that's all I was worried about I didn't even think about making an outline it may not have taken me 10 years that I've done an outline.
0: Well, sometimes it's a labor of love. And I mean, outline or no, this the story fits so perfectly together to sort of get you through all those moments of her present and all of the things that she's encountering. And also all those moments in the past that sort of really show you, oh, this is how she got to this point. And it really works to create such a, a rich character for Rena. I was wondering, since you were saying, you know, that you're not a fiction writer and you weren't sure on how to do this, how did you find her voice? How did you find the sort of the insights to Rita's character? Because she is so interesting and so easy to follow along, even though there are moments where I was like, oh, no, what are what are you doing? You know, you have those moments, but you also have so many moments that you just feel for her. And I was wondering how you sort of knew that you had her voice as you were writing.
1: I think Rita really is a combination of all the women that I grew up with. I grew up in a family of women, um, all my aunties and me, well, had, they were all girls. Our, the two youngest cousins, my brother and my cousin, um, Greg, are the youngest everybody all of the youngest cousins and they never had to do anything it was always the girls we had to chop the wood we had to do everything grandma said um, we had to help with the the garden we had to do all that stuff we had to haul water it was just part of growing up and part of being a woman in Navajo way we're the matrilineal society the women are the ones that make the decisions that rule the roof. You know, there's a bunch of men in the Navajo Nation government who think they're in charge. But we all know who really is in charge. And the women on the Navajo Nation are tough. They do what they want. They get what they need done. Even if you stand in their way, um, they'll get it done. My grandmother, my aunt, my cousins, my mother, well, my mother especially, (laughs) we're all very intense ladies. And um, I mean, I don't ever, I'd never say no to them for any reason whatsoever. And so when I was doing, when I was making Rita, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's like Rita, Rita is way cooler than me. Um, and that's kind of the way I, I look at her. We have the same kind of backgrounds and we had the same experience growing up with the same women and that kind of stuff. But Rita is a lot more outspoken, a lot more willing to take chances to do things that, uh, Maybe most people would be very hesitant to do, but she, it's her result. I think she just hates when somebody is taking advantage of, it, including her. That's like her. That's her pet peeve. And, you know, if you cross her, she's gonna find a way to figure it out, and she's gonna get you. And if you do harm to other people, I think it's the same. And I, I, I have that same instinct and Rita, but Rita is like as a hundred, and um. You know, I when I was working forensics, I we thought um we do this work for the people who need us to do this work, right? It is not always the easiest thing. Um, you know, but for Rita, she has to do this work. She has to do this work because, you know, the victims are begging her to do it. Um and it's hard. It's it's hard. She's really a big a, a big combination of everything, bowls and 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 it to how tough and strong they are.
0: And like you said this is really a coming of age story for her in many ways both sort of through her growth growing up we see her sort of understand and learn and be able to fit into where she's trying to with her with her gift or and you know understand how to utilize it in different ways even when she's being told don't in many ways but also even in the present day storyline it's a coming of age for her to sort of step into a lot of her Her power and a lot of her um, strength in what she's doing and standing, like you said, standing up for these voiceless people, which isn't something we see a lot in mystery novels. I don't know if a coming of age story is really where many of these are police procedurals uh, sort of fall. How do you feel about like this growth of Rita as a character over this sort of
1: novel? It's a huge metaphor, I think, for really spiritual growth. I mean, I, I think, you know, Rita, the one thing about Rita is that she really um, had no spirituality, like she believed in nothing. And I, I know it's it's funny that she really has no belief in anything. She does know that there's this world uh, away from our, our world where um, spirits will talk to her. But it's like nothing can, um, you know, that the police, the doctor, the church, none of it can take it away. Right, so she has this, you know, she just doesn't believe. So I think for her, um, that i that idea of growth and from her childhood when she has got this power that she doesn't understand, all the way through her adulthood where she understands her power and she's able to push the people that the spirits that she doesn't want to deal with kind of out of her her view. She's able to control who she lets in and what she does. But then she has to deal with Irma, who's like the same kind of woman that she is, that she needs something done, she's going to get it done. And so she, in the same way that Rita pushes, Irma pushes her, and she has to realize that, you know, the spiritual world isn't something that I can just mess with. Like, the medicine man has been telling me the truth all along. This is something that's much deeper than anything I can understand. But it's also something that since I have the power that I can control. So I think it's her ultimately coming into her power through that whole metamorphosis from her childhood into her, her work doing, you know, crime investigations. And her having to stick up for herself and her having to push back on some good spirit spirits coming to see her. And ultimately, her having to open herself up completely spiritually in order for her um, to survive. And I think so. It's really the spiritual metamorphosis for me on the page of how she becomes a woman and how she um, learns to step into her own power and learns to control. Of course, we kind of leave it a little open at the end. But I think that just goes to show that there's more growth to be made. There's more things that she'll need to learn. There are more uh, fights and battles that really will have before her, and it's it's a constant state of growth and metamorphosis, change and um, you know and for the better it's a really important part of the book i say for growth
0: and it's just another one of those pieces that adds something for readers to really latch onto and to find something that obviously you know hopefully most of us probably aren't speaking to dead people but i think that Uh, the sort of challenges that she faces both with her past and with her sort of floundering a little bit at the beginning to put herself on the path that she wants to be on, I think that's very relatable for most people to sort of say, oh yeah, I, I can see where she's coming from. I think we've all been there. But by the end, she has this group of people around her that are very supportive of her and sort of help put her on a path And I think that that's something else I love so much about this book is your cast of supporting characters. I mean, I'm a little biased and I think her grandmother is definitely my favorite character. I grew up very close to my grandmothers and having that, you know, that relationship there of like, yes, I, we're close and, you know, we have this bond, but I'm still gonna be in charge and tell you what to do is very telling. But she has great friends, the neighbor that she has uh, in her apartment building, I loved this sort of Cast of characters that you've created and woven together add so much to um, giving more to life to this story. There's never a, a, a half thought out character or you know someone who's just a blip on a page. This is really um, sort of above and beyond into creating
1: this world and making it real. Well, I'm so glad you know characters are so important to me. I don't know if um, if it's the the filmmaking world building that I've been doing, but I just feel like having a nice cast of characters is super important and having um Mrs. Santianis next door and uh, Mr. Vitsili, even though he's not there through the entire book, just having him presence at the beginning and at the end was super important to me because of her, her own spiritual growth. And you know, her mom, even though in, in the book she doesn't really get along with her mom. Um, I I thought that it was important for her to show that relationship because they both like, I think they were both growing up still, even though her mom, um, even though she's with her mom, her mom still didn't know how to be a mother. Um, She, she was trying to be, but she still didn't understand it. Um, So yeah, it just creates room for everybody to grow a little bit. And it's, um, it's also really, a lot of these characters really grew on me and, and, now that I'm working in the second book and trying to figure out how to how to move the characters forward. and get um a lot of the main characters or the main athletic characters are older and, you know, elderly. um uh, she has this really good good connection with older people. um and moving forward, it's always everybody at the book club step in asking you. my if the grandma <laughs> like. Uh, Nobody wants me to hurt grandma in the second book or anything. It's hard. It, it's hard. You get invested in these um, characters. And I have to say that the grandma character in the book is a lot like my grandma. So I have a very special connection to that character. And um, making sure that she moves in forward in the in the next book. But yeah, the characters are super important. I really like making characters that have really interesting stuff that they are into or... With you know, with Mrs. Santiago, she's obviously a Khrushchev, and she, she has this whole set of beliefs that's very similar to what Rita believes, but they just, it they never talk about it, you know. But it's it's very similar, and um, it's also a really good connector to all the other characters, and to just to show how even though we're different and we're coming from different places, how really connected we are, and you know how important it is to maintain those connections.
0: And it definitely creates a depth and richness that you can go back to. I read Shudder when it came out in 22, and I just have been rereading it now. And I definitely noticed things about the characters and about the different interactions that I hadn't noticed the first time. And it makes me very excited about these future books because I want to know more about all these people. You know, I'm like, I need to know more about her friends. I need to know, uh, you know, about all of the different aspects that come together and sort of see what's coming next for all these characters. Like you said, it ends a little open ended, and every time I get to the end, I just think, I just need a little bit more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not there yet, but I'm very excited to see sort of what comes next. Um, do you have a favorite character? If you had to say right now, well, I think
1: my I think the grandma character is my favorite, but I have a real special for with santi on it. When I was growing up, when I was going to college in Albuquerque. Um, I was I had I didn't have a lot of connections with my mom or my grandma, I, I didn't have a lot of money to go back and forth all every weekend or anything. I was I felt kind of trapped here in Albuquerque, and I had a lot of older ladies who I befriended, who would feed me dinner and who would take me out to lunch and just call me out of the queen to check on me. It was really just I think though, having all these like women characters in the book. Um, was really just kind of like a thank you to all those women who were so invested in me and would encourage me every day. And, you know, I would be so down some days and being called, I'm going to take you out to lunch and we're going to talk about why, you know, what you're doing is important. And stuff you know, just crazy stuff like that. And so, Mrs. Satianis and Grandma are those ladies. Um Of course, my grandma, I just never, I didn't have the money to go see her all the time. If I did, I probably would have been home every weekend. But And um, as my grandma got older, it was hard for her to travel. And so there at the end, my grandma and I didn't speak. And it was really hard. Um, And then she had a stroke and she couldn't speak. So we wanted to communicate. We couldn't do it on the phone. Um, I had to see her in person because everything she said, she wrote down on paper. And uh, so, like, having this grandma character there and having whole and having her healthy and able to do things, was so great to me because it gave me a chance for guess to kind of have what I didn't have with my grandma Farida and um, give her a little chance to reconnect. Yeah. And for me also to reconnect with who my grandma was and the relationship that we both had with each other and how close we were. And I think it really reminded me a lot about that. And with something my grandma has been gone for almost 20 years so or over twenty years and so it, it really brought a lot a a lot of memories back. And um I think a lot of that is really you can really see in the book. And uh, you can see all these women who went out of their way to take care of me as well. Um, in, in people like Licky. And even even in Shanice and even in their grumpy old um Abbas. I mean, every single person in that book had the connection to somebody I really knew. Um, those are real people and I and I had memories about these people in some cases a couple of people put together in one person to make a character. Um, you know, so there really was a lady in Johatie who had a dog named George Bush, you know. There oh, I, there's lots lot of stuff like that that are real and and um and I I'm glad that those traditions are being made at the, the book clubs that I've done with NAHOs or the the book clubs are the, the readings I've done on the red. Um, people have mentioned that, that these people are people that they know too, that they've met in their community that speak the way I've written the dialogue. And um, that's really great. Um, that is what really connects me. I want truth and I want authenticity and I want other Navajos to be able to read this book and connect with it. And so far it's been, it has been that. It has been that for me, for Navajo Radio. So I'm super pleased about that because that was almost my intention.
0: And there can be something very healing about writing those experiences and reading those experiences, even if it's in a police procedural where people are talking to the dead. There's such a uh, an energy of that connectivity, that spirituality, and all this sort of female perspective is something that I think lacks a lot in mystery novels as well. And all of the, I think all, most of the prominent characters in this novel are women. And it just makes it very easy to connect to. And I think it gives a different tone than some of the really like hard, cold clinical procedurals that are out there and are sort of those first things most people think of, probably.
1: Yeah. And I think women who work on pain have a different reaction to the than women do. I just do. I've been on enough young know, in react to what you're looking at and how I to both the time. I was the only woman on the scene or I was the only woman in a deposition or it's hard being a woman and being a photographer, you know, because it's, it's a man's world and you have to take in his field in filmmaking as well. They don't expect you to be the one carrying the camera and um, doing the work. It's hard and um, having a woman be a part of that world, I think it's important because I think H D and they see good feel differently me than men. I can feel it. I've only, in all of my time working, I think I've only worked with one woman, who was a police doctor. Everybody else I worked with were men, so I just felt treated differently. Um, and um, there's a lot of man screening that goes on when the a woman photographer to burn, show up on a scene with a bunch of men. Um, and when yeah, you do that for 16 years, it just gets old. You know, and so um, you can see a lot of that feeling that Rita has in there. You, think, you know, she has that she definitely has that, um, that air being man's flight in for the last experience of her life. <laughs>
0: it's I think this should be um, required reading for both women to feel understood and men to start to understand um, exactly what's going on there.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. They need to, you know, the police officers need to take some training on, you know, how to how to treat women who are in the job. With them, they do because they they're awful. <laughs> to
0: sort of wrap up, I always like to ask for your literary influences or your creative influences. Who who is out there making Ramona Emerson
1: author and filmmaker? I usually read when I was a teenager and when I was growing up. I read because I had to. I was one of those people who was just like didn't really like to read. I I read comic books and my mom had a huge heavy metal collection, <laughs> and she um, let me read all kinds of really horrible, campy um, comic books like Fat Freddy, Fat Freddy, and uh, Fat Freddy's Cat, and pretty inappropriate stuff for kids my that age to be reading. I must say, but. Uh, but my mom was pretty free to let me read whatever I wanted to read, so I read a lot of that stuff. Um, not only the heavy metal, but she read Omni, It was like a, mag- like a science magazine. I was super into that. I wanted to be an astronaut a long time, so I had no interest in um, a lot of stuff. I just I was a big Apollo um, uh, history fan and watched the right stuff like eight hundred times, and I, that's what I wanted to do. But my eyes were too bad, and I didn't. Um, I wanted to swipe planes, also not a good idea. Anyway, so all of my my heartbreak deterred. I um, watched a lot of horror movies. Um, I read Sanvoria. <laughs> read a lot of bad comic books that I probably didn't be reading. I um, watched a lot of Kubrick, a lot of John Carpenter movies. That was my age. I was more of a film person than a book person. But if I did read books that I picked that the four, I wasn't forced to read at school was the summer reading, it was usually Stephen King. I, Stephen King always had a book out every year, you know, or sometimes nowadays twice a year. It was always from things that she could, you knew that you can um, read, and my grandma and my mom let me read. Um, so that was my thing. I, I like to read Stephen King books and, and watch horror movies.
0: And I guess you can see some of those influences in sort of going into crime scenes and writing supernatural thrillers. I think that, by and large, I think this book is going to be an influence on a lot of, you know, people starting to write mysteries and starting to see those um, sort of influences there. And I can't wait to see what comes next for Rita. Do you have any um, hints that you can give us on what she's going to be up to
1: next? (laughs) Um, While well, I do have a second book, it's called Exposure. I've been doing a lot of research. It's um, going to be a serial killer this time um, with Rita. And I've been doing a lot of a lot of research about the Catholic Church. It's pretty creepy from what I hear. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I write chapters and um, I've sent a few off to, of course, my editor. and My husband reads them. And, of course, my agent, we Um them. I think my agent's comment was, where does this stuff come from? She was asking my husband, like, where does this stuff come from? Who is she? Because she seems like such a nice person. When you- <laughs> <laughs> then you read these pages and you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> What's wrong with her? Um, yeah. So uh, I'm glad that I'm having that reaction with everybody. And it's visceral that people are already being like, shocked and and then out, and, and they're wondering what's wrong with me, and I, I like that, I think that's a yeah.
0: <laughs> Those are all those years of horror influence coming back. You can
1: be like, look,
0: this has been a long time
1: coming. Yeah, yeah, it has been, and I've always loved telling scary stories, and well, watching scary stories, so yeah, it, it's great to be able to, to tell scary stories, and I like to give people um, something to think about, and as far, what else would could be here with us?
0: And definitely there are so many things to think about, even <laughs> just in Shudder. So I can't wait for our readers and listeners to get their hands on the paperback copy, because now you can throw it in your bag. Get scared on your commute. Get scared hanging out in the park this summer. Ramona Emerson, thank you so much for being with us today. Like I said, grab your copy of Shudder out in paperback now. Thank
2: you so much for being here. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Shudder. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison, who's going to kick us off. Hello, Madison.
3: Hello. I'm Madison joining you from my store in Los Angeles, California. And when I was thinking of a book to recommend to go along with Shudder, I was thinking what has a bit of horror, what has a bit of mystery thriller. And I am actually going to recommend a book I am reading right now, which is Ninth House by Leigh Bardugo. Leigh Bardugo is probably one of my favorite authors, and this is her adult like fiction novel. So it's definitely a big step away from Shadow and Bone, Six of Crows, that era. It's completely different. And this one is definitely a bit darker when it comes to her writing style, which I love. So you follow the our main character, Alex Stern. Uh, she was raised in LA. She was in the drug scene. She's a dropout covered in tattoos. And then she survives this horrific homicide and when she wakes up, there's a man in her hospital room who's like, I can offer you this second chance. And this second chance is within kind of like a secret society at Yale, which the author Lee Bardugo, she is a Yale graduate. And she said in an interview, she was in a secret society at Yale. Well, we haven't, we don't know which one. So... <laughs> She knows her stuff for this for this novel. Again, she gets accepted to Yale under the and has to like just reinvent herself. That doesn't mean she turns into like this college property girl, not at all. She has to dive into this magical secret society realm and kind of keep tabs on all of Yale's secret societies and make sure they're doing like magic in a safe and like respectful way. Like they aren't abusing their powers um, within these societies. But then a girl is murdered and everyone kind of brushes it off. She was like, oh, she was a townie. Like it has nothing to do with this society. It's like nothing at all. But Alex is like, no, no, there's something, there's something off. So you see her kind of dive into this investigation And it just unlocks so many like avenues and different like things that the societies are doing underground and like a whole new drug scene, but with like a hint of magic, magical drugs, which are probably a lot worse than regular drugs. And the key to this, what makes her such an intriguing character is that she can see ghosts. They call them greys in this book and she can see them. And the one thing you're not supposed to do is connect yourself to a gray. And she does to try to find the answer to this mystery. So as I said, it is still a read in progress. So I can't give you hints to the ending, but I do know the second novel is already out, Hellbent. So far, amazing writing. You can see Bardugo's growth. Um, I can't praise it enough because you do have both those elements of horror. You have mystery thriller. It is categorized as fiction, which it is a fiction novel, so it has a little bit it like checks a bunch of genres and again the writing is spectacular uh which is why i wanted to recommend this book which was ninth house by lee bardugo what do you have for us mark
2: fantastic pick and i have to say hellbent has one of my favorite covers on the bookshelves right now it is uh creepy and gorgeous it might
3: have something to do with the societies just saying (laughs)
2: All right, I'll, pu- I'll bump it up on my TBR pile. Um, <laughs> I chose uh, something that kind of leans into the horror genre. I chose a book that was recently chosen as uh, one of our book club picks, and that is She is a Haunting uh, by Trang Tan Tran. This is, I would call literary horror, uh, much in the vein of like uh, Mexican Gothic, uh, if you guys are familiar with that one. Uh, It's set in modern day Vietnam, but has roots very much tied to the past. So we follow a young woman named Jade, who is spending her summer in Vietnam with family uh, before she goes off to university. She is very heavily weighed down by a lot of fractures in her life. Uh, Her parents are divorced. She's struggling with her sexuality and trying to keep that tamped down and hidden. She is struggling financially to make ends meet, to pay for college. And she's also having troubles trying to blend in while trying to also stay invisible culturally. She's got a lot of struggles going on with her cultural identity and wanting to be a part of something larger. All of that baggage uh, she takes with her to Vietnam. And so the summer is an opportunity for a bit of mending, um, a way for her to kind of just shake some things off. And an opportunity comes up where she is going to potentially be able to pay for college by staying and helping to renovate a particular house. This house has plans. This house is angry and hungry and has a lot of generational rage. French colonialism in Vietnam is a a topic that doesn't get brought up as often as it probably should, especially in fiction and genre fiction. And this house has a lot of history behind it that has caused some supernatural things to jump up and want to consume Jade and anybody inside. The book follows Jade while she is Coming to terms with herself, coming to terms with her own past, coming to terms with her heritage while confronting something very ominous and very savage. The writing in this book I really enjoyed because it just builds On itself, very well. The things that occur are, uh, of course, creepy. It's a haunted house story. So you get some of those bits going on, but the way that they're layered into the personality of these characters, particularly Jade, it just feels like this vice that is slowly squeezing you to death. So it's got a tension that I haven't read in a long time and I really appreciated. So if you want something that is lovely but gruesome, check out She is a Haunting. And that is by Trang Tan Tran. But guess what, guys? That's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over, though. Uh, We really appreciate you listening to our book recommendations and these wonderful interviews that we have um, all through the week. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester.
3: And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove.
2: Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye.
3: Happy reading. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.